Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has dismissed his defense minister amid the lack of progress in the counter-offensive operation and a slew of corruption scandals hindering Ukraine's efforts to join NATO and the EU. Meanwhile, public opinion in the U.S. is shifting its support for Ukraine. How will the sacking of the defense minister impact Ukraine's performance in the offensive? And how will ideological differences within the U.S. affect the conflict? And how are European nations feeding the strength of the war? To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined by Anton Fadayashin, Associate Professor of the History Department at American University, Pavel Felgenhauer, Russian Defense Analyst, and Peter Zalmayev, Director of the Eurasia Democracy Initiative. That's our topic. I'm Xu Qingduo. Welcome to Dialogue. Uh, Anton, I will start with you. You know, the reason Ukrainian President Zelensky gave for dismissing his former defense minister was that the ministry needs, quote, new approaches as the war with Russia enters its 19th month. So what do new approaches mean here? Well, I think that uh, Mr. Gaznikov is used as a fall guy in this situation. After all, defense ministers are not the ones who determine the tactics and strategy on the battlefield. For that, there are uh, generals, um, and that would be Zaluzhny, Sirsky, and uh, others, uh, capable men, but also, of course, men who can make mistakes uh, and misjudgments. Uh, Mr. Gaznikov was accused of corruption, uh, survived the first wave of purges in the Ukrainian government. But I guess this was uh, his time to fall, and he was the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, in terms of procuring weapons for the Ukrainian army, which is ultimately what the responsibility of a defense minister is. He's actually done a remarkably good job in the sense that the West was willing to contribute these weapons. The problem is how they are put to use and how slowly the counteroffensive has been going. As a matter of fact, the Ukrainians have lost more territory in the northern Donbass than they have gained in the south, despite their soldiers' very courageous attempts to reseize territory. So I think what we're looking at is really an, an excuse by the government of Mr. Zelensky to sort of uh, put the blame on one person. His replacement is unlikely to really constitute a major tactical or strategic shift on the actual battlefield, which is where ultimately the outcome of this conflict will be decided. Pavel, uh, could this uh, lead to any major changes in battlefield strategy from the Ukrainian side? Well, I would agree that it does not, because uh, Mr. Resnikov was not uh, the key decision maker at all. The key decision makers is, of course, President Vladimir Zelensky and his uh, military staff, led by General Zaluzhny, and they are still in place. Today, the, the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov uh, said that this change, uh, the dismissal of the defense minister and appointment of anyone, does not change anything. And I agree with Peskov. 
it does not. Right now, there is no, at least in the coming couple of months at least, hardly there will be any major changes. But afterwards, if the Ukrainian offensive actually fails to achieve big results, then changes happen, and maybe there'll be changes in the military hierarchy. That'd be a clear signal that things are changing. Mm-hmm. Not right. Well, Peter uh, from Kiev here. So, w- what's your understanding of uh, the dismissal of Mr. Resnikov? Uh, is it because of the slow progress in the counteroffensive portion, or because of a scandal, <coughs> or somebody needs to be mm. to put blame on? It's a combination of uh, the things that you've listed. Uh, obviously, you cannot blame, you know, any problems connected with the counteroffensive on a civilian, essentially a civilian. You know, Mr. Resnikov prior to being appointed Minister of Defense, did not have much, if any, experience with warfare. Yes, uh, I think I would connect, uh, in fact, his dismissal in some way with the current, you know, prosecution um, and the charges against Mr. Kolomoisky, who was a a close ally of the current President Zelensky and uh, is one of the uh, major oligarchs of Ukraine uh, who is wanted on charges in the United States. You know, Mr. Zelensky is planning to attend the General Assembly of the United Nations in New York, where he also plans uh, to meet on the sidelines with uh, the American President Joe Biden. So I think these uh, the two steps, the resignation of Resnikov, uh, who there is some, uh, I think, evidence that there may have been some underhanded dealings at, at, at the ministry under his purview, but also the charges against Kolomoisky may be meant to allay concerns on the part of the Americans, since they are obviously Ukraine's largest and most important backer. Uh, then uh, President Zelensky has uh, nominated uh, Rastam Umarov, the former People's Deputy to, uh, of Ukraine, to become the new defense minister. So how much do we know about Mr. Umarov? Mr. Umarov uh, has never been a super, super public person, but uh, is said to be a very, very capable operator, was, you know, had a, a pre a diverse career in telecoms, and he was also part of the Crimean Tatar leadership living in exile in uh, Kiev. And he is uh, said to be very good at negotiations, speaks English fluently, speaks Turkish uh, fluently, which is uh, very important considering the role that Turkey plays in this conflict, considering obviously importance of the Crimean issue to the war that is happening and to the Russian Federation. So uh, no military experience, just like his uh, predecessor, but apparently a very, very capable individual. Well, uh, Anton, you know, as uh, President Zelensky admitted, you know, the counteroffensive is difficult. It is happening probably slower than how some people may want or can see it. Uh, uh, so obviously, the country or the government is under pressure, in particular from, you know, Washington or Brussels. And the expectation is, is high, let's say, for the counteroffensive operation. So how, you know, to what you attributed to this, uh, you know, uh, either failure or lack of progress, in the battlefield. The, uh, the problem with the counteroffensive is that it was announced months ahead of time. Um, the Russians made very serious and meticulous preparations in constructing their defenses. The Ukrainians have, do not have enough weapons or manpower to break through those. 
And I'm afraid that the expectations that were set both in Ukraine and in the West were simply unrealistic. And that's one of the dangers of uh, believing your own war narrative. Uh, some would call it war propaganda. Um, if everyone remembers, your viewers remember the amount of times that we were told that the Russians have run out of weapons, that their morale is low, that the moment that the Ukrainian army starts moving, uh, the Russian ranks will break and run away in panic. The whole command structure will collapse. Well, none of that has happened. Uh, the Russians are outproducing NATO in terms of weapons, at least so far. Maybe that will ch change in the future, but it certainly hasn't. Right now, the morale is enough to sustain the onslaught. And what they've done essentially is ground the Ukrainian counteroffensive into the ground. And th there are uh, plenty of, um, of rumors that they may be preparing to launch their own. They're certainly seizing land in the north of Donbass. And we don't have to take the, uh, the, the Russians' word for it. We know for a fact that the Ukrainian government has ordered the evacuation uh, of civilians from the town of Kupiansk. So for all of these reasons, what we were led to believe about the situation on the ground simply has not worked out. And unfortunately for the Ukrainians, it has not worked out in their favor. Pavel, you know, from the Moscow's point of view, you know, how do they see this period of time of this counteroffensive and, of course, uh, let's say, uh, the fight back from the Russian side? Uh, well, for, at least from the Moscow point of view, it seems that everything is more or less working out. The Russian defenses are hanging on. They are holding their position more or less. Uh, the Ukrainians have suffered heavy losses in, in men and equipment, and time is running out. It's already September, maybe a month left of good weather in the south of Ukraine, maybe a bit more, a week or two, but that's it. Then come the rains, mobile warfare becomes virtually impossible, and the Ukrainians failed during the summer offensive to go mobile. It's still a pitch battles, and for Russia, that's what the Russian command is actually striving for, to stop the Ukrainians, to stop the, and make their summer offensive fail, and then there could be maybe political changes. There's going to be dissatisfaction, and there is dissatisfaction in Ukraine. In the West, uh, the support for Ukraine will begin to wane, and there's going to be pressure to end this war, compromise that Russia would see preferable based on a more or less line of control situation. Uh, freezing the present situation as it is, and that's what, in principle, Russia is striving for. There is some talk that Russia could go on a counteroffensive itself after stopping the Ukrainian counteroffensive, but I don't think that right now the Russian military have enough capability for any serious offensive action, but their defense seems to be, up to now, very solid. Well, related to that, Pavel, uh, there's a report of uh, Mr. Putin meeting the leader from North Korea, Kim Jong-un, very soon. So there's uh, expected to talk of uh, the supply for ammunition or missiles from North Korea. Uh, how likely is that? Well, I believe that's possible. Today, the Kremlin didn't comment, didn't say no or yes about a possible 
a visit by the Korean leader to Vladivostok. There's going to be an economic forum there in the next week. And yes, this, this would make sense because uh, North Korea has, has, has stockpiles and produces a lot of Soviet caliber ordnance and missiles that could the Russian military could use, which they because they are still very serious problems. The Russian defense industry is not what what it was during the Cold War. It's not producing enough of the equipment and munitions and parts that are needed for a successful military campaign. And North Korea can provide and we can pay them most likely at least uh, we have enough money to pay back and so that would bring both sides and of course they're they, north korea and russia right now are under international sanctions and different kind of other sanctions and so them parking together could make sense so that's very much possible yes well, uh, Anchang, of course, you know, there's a report carried by the Wall Street Journal saying that, you know, uh, military uh, strategists and policymakers across the West are already starting to look at uh, a 2024 spring offensive by the Ukrainian uh, armed forces. Uh, so that's uh, how likely that, you know, given uh, because this week Washington is going to supply with uh, the Ukrainians with uh, the depleted uranium uh, ammunition. So what's next? Well, I think what's next is once the weather turns to rains and the, the fields of um, uh, southeastern Ukraine turn into oceans of mud, which is an annual, an annual cycle, the major military campaign will come to an end and everyone's going to be taking a step back and evaluating uh, the future. Look, the, the, uh, the President Zelensky's government has started moving towards uh, another wave of mobilization. They have issued um, uh, decrees that uh, uh, reduce the, um, the bar for people who will be brought into the military. There's talk about uh, uh, requesting that EU states begin to um, extradite, essentially deport Ukrainian males of a certain age who are uh, draftable, essentially. So it looks like uh, Ukraine is preparing to do another wave of mobilization, which is pretty much a guarantee that this war will continue into the spring. The problem, of course, is with uh, training and uh, arming all of these men, however many will be conscripted into the army. And then, of course, uh, uh, moving them into the fields in the winter. From the Russian side, um, not much in terms of tactics will change because the defense lines will still be there. The Ukrainians have barely reached the first of the three Suravikin uh, lines of defenses. We haven't seen any Ukrainian vehicle driving through the dragon's teeth uh, parts of the defensive line. So uh, we may simply see a replay of what we've been witnessing during this summer, except it will be either in the winter or in the spring when the weather becomes uh, better. The question is, will the Ukrainians be prepared for the second counteroffensive? And only time will tell. Well, with the supply of uh, depleted uh, uranium uh, ammunition and plus the F-16s, will that change the situation in the battlefield, Anton? 
No, I don't believe it will. The depleted uranium shells will have to be uh, fired by uh, tanks. Most likely they're the only ones to get close enough to other tanks to actually make the shells uh, worth it. And the Russians have demonstrated that they're fairly good at destroying tanks before they can get close enough to their own machinery to do any significant damage. As for the F-16s, we don't know exactly when they're going to get there yet. We don't know how many pilots will actually be prepared to uh, fly them. There's this delusion among many commentators that getting you know into the cockpit of a plane is kind of like learning how to drive a tractor or a truck. It's not. It takes years to prepare pilots to fly well, especially in a situation of uh, combat stress. Um, American pilots are trained for five to eight years. So this will take a long time. None of these will be game changers. None of these uh, will be wonder weapons of about which we've been hearing for, what, 18 months now. And none of the previous ones have made a strategic difference to the Ukrainian side in this war. Well, Peter, given these challenges, uh, you know, uh, and also there's a complaint of the lack of uh, uh, weapon supply from uh, European countries from the American side, and despite all the talk. So how much do we know about the strategy, uh, you know, uh, from the Ukrainian side for the next step? Well, the strategy, you know, for the next step, obviously, is being kept uh, under wraps. Uh, the Ukrainian Defense Ministry is uh, and the military command are pursuing this uh, policy of a complete informational blackout, where there's very little information about you know, the exact advances day to day. I would take issue with the, with the professor who said that, you know, Ukrainians haven't even breached the Surovikian Dragon Teeth line. Well, according to some reports, in fact, that line has indeed been breached in several spots and it did not present much of a challenge. But once again, I could not say that with a 100% degree where, if that happened, where it happened. There is some cautious optimism on the part of some including American generals uh, and who have said that, yes, uh, it, is, it is probably unlikely that this counteroffensive will achieve a significant breakthrough before the end of the year, even though anything is possible in war. Uh, there's high hopes that some have for the coming spring and uh, and some are considering that the West, yes, there are some problems with the uh, support of Ukraine, with some problems with the popular perception of this war and popular support of Ukraine, uh, of Ukraine's military effort in the United States of America. At the same time, the military industrial complex of the US and other members of the Rammstein coalition uh, have ramped up their production of, uh, of weaponry, uh, just to give you a statistics, uh, you know, 155 millimeter artillery shells, which have been crucial in this war, they are projected to increase from 24,000 a month this year to at least 80,000 a month next year. You know, like I said, the, the, the previous speaker said that Russia is uh, out producing the West. Well, if it's the case, then why is Russia going to Iran and North Korea, the world's worst pariah states? With their essentially, uh, ha you know, with their hands outstretched and begging for weaponry, you know that is uh, a big question. Once again, Russia is projecting power, projecting confidence. That, but that is one thing to project, and the other thing is hard figures. Uh, collectively, Western countries have tens of times the number of, uh, you know, the, the the figure of GDP and economic might. 
and their capacity to produce weapons, as long as there's political will there, is obviously much greater than Russia's. Uh, well, Anton, you want to respond? Yes, I think that it's um, um, we have to take the, the GDP comparisons uh, very cautiously because search capacity and in general uh, industrial capacity uh, matters greatly. I'm not sure where Peter gets the figure of 80,000. The United States is planning on increasing their shell production to 24,000 per month at the end of this year, the beginning of next year, and the Europeans can barely match that. The French, I remember about three months ago, declared that they will double their shell monthly shell production from two to 4,000, which is about the amount of shells that the Ukrainians fire in one day, depending on how intensely the combat takes place. As for the Russians going to the North Koreans and the Iranians uh, begging for weapons, uh, they have made purchases from there, but so far it hasn't been shells. It's been other gear, especially from the Iranians in terms of uh, um, aerial unmanned combat vehicles, but the Russians have also ramped up their uh, own production. And so far, they are leading. Now, can the West catch up? Definitely. But it's the political will angle that is the question, because increasing uh, military production also means extending this uh, war indefinitely. And here, public opinion seems to be working against whatever political will may be mobilized in the next few months, both in Washington and in European capitals. Well, Peter, speak of that, uh, we do see these uh, public opinions, uh, you know, both of you mentioned about that in the poll by CNN, you know, 55% of American voters say uh, Congress should not authorize additional funding to support Ukraine. If you compare that figure to uh, the one more than a year ago in February 2022, you know, 62% said the U.S. should do more to support Ukraine. And of course, uh, in the in the domestic uh, divide, you see Republicans, like 71% of them say Congress should stop sending more assistance to Ukraine. Well, Democrats, 62% uh, of them favor more funding for Ukraine. Uh, Peter, how big a concern is that? You know, the largest uh, basically contributor to the Ukrainian fight, uh, you know, maybe staggering in terms of uh, the consistency or, the, uh, or the, their determination to support Ukraine. Well, that's why that's precisely why the Ukrainians are arguing that before that happens, before there's a new president, let's go, you know, for example, a Republican president who's skeptical of continuing support to, uh, to Ukraine on that same level, give Ukraine as many uh, as much weaponry as possible as soon as possible. What's preventing you from giving Ukraine those long range attack missile? What's preventing you from giving Ukraine? Um, F F-16s as soon as possible so that, you know, Ukraine is able to achieve a military victory and a breakthrough once again as soon as possible. Having said that, yes, there is a little bit of a fatigue uh, that set in that has probably very little to do with any sort of sympathy towards Russia or towards Russia's claims. No one, um, you know, uh, would say that. I don't think uh, that that's the case in any Western countries. Having said that, once again, the, what's the role of the U.S. president? The U.S. president essentially single-handedly 
with his advisors sets the course of the foreign policy. And so uh, this is Joe Biden's uh, uh, big uh, electoral issue with which he's going to campaign uh, for the 2024 elections. He cannot afford, let's say, another Afghanistan from which uh, mm -hmm. the American army so anonymously and precipitously withdrew. Uh, Joe Biden needs to see some progress, at least some significant progress in this war. And so I do not think he will be swayed for as long as he remains president, that he will be swayed uh, much by the opposition on the part of the public. And let me just once again say it's largely Republican, 70 percent of which have said uh, that they're cool on uh, continuing uh, support of Ukraine to the same extent that have been responsible for it. The Democrats are still, you know, 60 percent of Democrats at least are strong supporters of Ukraine and indeed agitate for an increased amount of aid to Ukraine. Well, Pavel, you know, Russian media has uh, quoted uh, internal Ukrainian sources as saying that the U.S. has issued a final ultimatum to Ukraine, uh, saying that, you know, if there is no significant breakthrough in the offensive in November, that we will have to negotiate. We don't know whether that's true or false, but that also, uh, again, reflects this kind of, uh, uh, let's say, like uh, this cautiousness uh, about continuous support to uh, Ukraine. Uh, what about the Ukrainian, uh, you know, European countries? Is there a similar fatigue uh, in terms of supporting uh, for the war? Well, there is some in public, but basically it's still uh, the political class in Europe and in America too are going to support the Ukraine. And of course, they're not really fighting, the Ukrainians are fighting. So many in Moscow believe that uh, the Ukrainian uh, government is uh, just a puppet government and what they're told they do, it's not really totally so. And uh, in Ukraine, there's their own fatigue from this continued war and lack of success. And yes, Moscow is basing its right now its strategy on hanging on, keeping the Ukrainians offensive contained, fatiguing the Ukrainians and the West into accepting a compromise, a ceasefire, or a semi-truce. I don't know some kind of. It's not. It's not going to be a real peace. But it's going to be uh, something like you know in the Kashmir or some in uh, some other places in the world where there's line of control, and this line of control will give Russia parts of Ukraine uh, that can be sold to the Russian public as a victory. Mm -hmm. Because right now, of course, continuing as it is is not Russia's interest. There, there's growing problems in Russian military and in the military-industrial complex. Russia want to end this war, but on its own terms, and there's hope that that can happen, maybe even this winter, uh, when the situation kind of boils down, that the line of control is more or less the same, lots of blood spilled, lots of treasure spent, nothing changes, so let's try and make some kind of deal. That's what Russia hopes, and it's a hope that has its own merit. And uh, in the coming months, the Russian military will hang on in the hope that this can bring desired outcome. Uh, we, Anton, we have the data for the European economies and the German economy in particular, you know, n not that optimistic. Will that affect the public opinions about the war? 
It already is, and it will do so uh, even more so. And what's worse for the Ukrainians, it will also affect the amount of money that the EU is willing to spend, not only to support the Ukrainian government itself, uh, because it's paying the wages of its state employees with the help of Western money, but also, of course, in the amount of weapons and uh, military material uh, that it's supplying. The fact that the German economy mm -hmm. is actually doing worse than the Russian economy. With that, we come to the end of today's show. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qindou. Thanks for being with us. See you next time.